Uh, welcome. Uh, if you're new visiting Christ Bible Church, uh, my name is Randy. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the great honor and privilege this morning of uh, helping us to work through 1 Timothy 4, 6 to 16. So if you'll open up your Bibles, uh, we will read this together. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we give out scripture journals uh, for all the books that we go through. So right in the lobby, there is a stack of uh, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus uh, little pamphlets that you can use to take notes in and follow along. Uh, so feel free to grab that uh, if that would be a helpful resource to you. But let's read the word of the Lord this morning as we go before him and hear what he has to say. First Timothy 4, starting at verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe." Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by the prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this encouragement, these letters of instruction given from the Apostle Paul to Timothy, Lord, indeed given uh, to us as your people today. And so we pray as we go before you, as we seek to understand your words, as we seek to discern and apply them to our minds and our hearts, that the Holy Spirit would be at work, that you would be convicting us of sin or wrongdoing or wrong learning, Lord, that we might be faithful, that we might grow in our Christian conduct, in our love, in our faith, in our purity, in our speech. Lord, we want to be people who exemplify your excellence. And so we pray that you would use your word to that end, to help us dwell in your presence and reflect who you are to all that are around us. Father, we thank you for your word, for your encouragement. We pray that you would edify us this morning. Amen. One of the most frustrating tasks a person might ever have to do, indeed, that I've done in my life, is assemble something from Ikea. All of you have done this at some point in your life, probably. Why is this? Because you buy a box, and it's a dresser, it comes with this weird little pamphlet with this Ghostbuster-looking weird guy that's supposed to help you understand how to put this dresser or this armoire together. But the problem is, as you begin to make progress, the instructions somehow make everything more difficult. You have no idea if this screw is actually supposed to go in this place or not. The whole assembly feels unnatural and counterintuitive. Worse, if you make one small mistake, you put the wrong screw in the wrong hole, the cheap wood and everything else begins to crumble and you're left hoping your dresser is held together by duct tape and super glue. 
This is what happens when we try to do something difficult like assemble a desk from Ikea. The whole time we're asking ourselves over and over and over, am I actually doing this right? Is this what I am supposed to do? The whole time we're asking if all of this labor is going to produce a working dresser or if we've wasted several hundred dollars and a whole day of work for something that's not going to work as intended. Luckily for us, the Christian life is not guided by some mysterious, uninterpretable document. We don't have to go about our Christian living and wonder, am I doing the right things? Scripture helps us to do that. The Bible gives us instructions for not only what the Christian life should look like, but how to move along the way. 1 Timothy 4, 6-16 this morning is an example of this type of instruction. If you're new and just jumping in today, this book is a letter written from the Apostle Paul to one of his protégés, Timothy, who is pastoring a church in the city of Ephesus. Paul had helped start this church, and he's writing to remind Timothy of what his consumption and production should look like as somebody who is faithful to God, somebody who is seeking to lead the people, so that Timothy might be able to answer that question, am I doing this right? How many times in our life do we find ourselves asking that? Whether with a dresser, whether we're driving someplace that we're unsure of, we are constantly asking ourselves, am I doing the right things? Our spiritual walk is no different. We're constantly wondering, am I doing the right thing? We're going to scripture, we're seeking to be taught, and we are hoping to follow God faithfully. But the reality is, We are prone to wonder. The natural man is prone to wonder because the natural man will naturally reject God. Following God is not counterintuitive to the person who is not live and reborn in God. And so we constantly are asking ourselves as we're growing in our Christian walk, as we're growing in our faith, am I doing this right? Because it doesn't seem like the wisdom of the world that has been poured into us is always exactly what we are following. Scripture asks for something different. It asks us to follow something higher, better, but it's something often different. And so this passage this morning is a great encouragement for us as God's people because it gives us confidence to answer that question about our Christian walk, am I doing this right? It provides a helpful way to evaluate what we are feeding on and look at what we are producing. It helps us to become the good servants that we all desperately want to be. And so today, as we work through this section, we will finish with an answer. Am I doing this right? Am I walking and feeding on the right things that God has commanded me to do as a Christian? So let's start. What is a good servant consuming? What does their diet look like? Paul starts here at the very beginning in verse, what is this, 6? As he's walking through, you will be a good servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, how you were were trained in the words of the faith and in good doctrine. What is this? What is the words of the faith and the good doctrine that Timothy has been founded on and is indeed commanded throughout this entire passage to go back to? Well, the words of the faith is that which has been passed down. This is the genuine teaching of Scripture given to the church from God through the teaching of those who had been uniquely called to do so. 
It's not something that's ongoing. There's not new revelation as, as uh, Timothy is here. He is being pointed back to this words of truth, to the words that God has passed down through the prophets, through the apostles, that he might then in turn teach the church in Ephesus. There's no new message of salvation, no new mythology to follow, unlike the things that are being taught all around him. The second piece, it's not just the words of the faith. He's commanded to go to good doctrine. What is doctrine here? This isn't doctrine as we might formally think of it today, but should be understood as the good teaching. The words of the faith and good teaching, as opposed to the bad teaching that's all around him. Good doctrine or good teaching brings clarity to the words of the faith, the words of truth, those things that bring life to the believers. Bad doctrine, bad teaching either confuse somebody or they lead somebody into a wrong way of belief about God, about salvation, and you could go on down the line. And so what is in view here is both the right understanding and the application of the words of faith when he talks about go to the words of faith and the good doctrine. And this is particularly important for Timothy to know that this doctrine has been passed from Paul to Timothy. Don't look at all these other things. Look at what did I teach you? What did I instruct you on? What have you learned has been passed down? The good faith, the good doctrine. Paul is reminding Timothy here that he is a good servant, and we know that he is, and he's a good servant because he's been trained and is committed to the gospel message. The gospel that, as Jude 3 puts it so well, was once and for all delivered to the saints. Good teaching, therefore we should understand, always points us back to the good message. It is saturated with Scripture because Scripture is the very words of God. Indeed, we see this in 2 Timothy 3.16. How does Paul describe Scripture to Timothy? It's breathed out by God. This is the type of teaching that Timothy has been trained on, the type of teaching that indeed Paul wants Timothy to return to, to keep feeding on, and to feed his church with. All around Timothy is teaching that is everything but that teaching breathed out by God. It is speculation, mythologies, old wives' tales, and superstition. The result is rather than anchoring somebody with confidence in God, the people that have been hearing this teaching all around Timothy, indeed some even in his church, have become unsteady probably and uncertain. It will not be so for Timothy. Why? He has been, and we will see, is continued to be anchored on the words of the faith and on the good doctrine that have been passed down to him by, the, by Paul and others. It's a teaching that in its essence is Christ-centric in its message and its application. This is not the teaching that we find most common today. The teaching we often see and hear today is not Christ-based, but solution-based. Instead of seeing the primary need of Christians as growing closer to the one who has saved them, who's restoring them, who is preserving them, the primary need for most people and the teaching they seek is the immediate issues at hand. I opened up the Bible app. It's the most po one of the most popular apps you can get on your phone or tablet. Uh, it's by an organization called YouVersion. I opened it up and said, I wonder what plans they have. If I want to read the Bible, what is their recommended plans on their opening page going to be? Here was the first three or four that I saw. Seven days on hope. Fourteen days on meeting daddy. Five lessons on friendship. 
five days to detox the soul. Not even sure what that means. I could go on and on, but this is just the first four things. You want to read the Bible, you hit the Bible plan, what is it going to point you to? Not, what is the gospel? Who is Jesus? What has he done? No, let's look at friendship, which is good. Let's look at, maybe I wouldn't qualify it as meeting daddy, but understanding who God is. That's a good thing. Five lessons on friendship. Again, hope. Detoxing the soul, still don't know what that is. Didn't bother to look into it. But the problem is, these things are something helpful, and I'm sure if I went through and read through all the scripture there and the teaching that was along with them, there would be biblical things in all of them. But this is the problem when the words of faith, scripture, are not paired with the good doctrine or teaching. It allows, most of the time I would argue unknowingly, for the center of scripture to move from being God-centric to becoming man-centric. 1 Timothy 4 wants to show the foolishness of this approach. You want to be more godly? That's the question at hand. Be a good servant? Then Paul is going to remind Timothy and us today, consume, be trained in the things of God. So often we want to be better Christians, but we work hard for something like being a better dad. Is being a better dad a good thing? Of course We should all, if we have kids, seek to be better dads, better husbands. But we have messed up the equation if we see our Christian faith as simply a means to becoming a better dad. It's not the right way to look at things. What should we look at as Christians? We should desire to become more and more like God. If we become more like God, we will inevitably become a better dad. If we become a better dad, we might not be any more like God. God. You can apply the same equation to many areas in life. For example, there's lots of principles in scripture that you can look at for being a good business owner. This should be expected. God created the world. He's created all things. He knows how it should operate. It is not wrong to seek to grow in wisdom for business or elsewhere by studying scripture, by looking at the principles laid out in scripture. But becoming a better business owner by applying biblical principles to your life does not, and I would argue if that is your sole focus, almost certainly will not make you a more godly person. But if you grow in godliness, if you grow in your emulation of the God who created and saved you, you will undoubtedly be not just more godly, but you will be a better business owner as well. The words of faith received through good teaching bring us not into a better self-realization, but into the presence of God, where we see him, know him, and emulate him more and more. This is where our hope should rest. This is the ultimate pursuit of our life. This is what good teaching helps to do, to move our attention more and more and more onto God. And so we pause this morning and we might ask, what type of teaching are we consuming? Good teaching points us to the good message and the good God. Worthless teaching is that which points to anything else. So often we find ourselves fascinated by the type of teaching that masks itself as godly by using biblical principles or even scripture, but is man-centric. Mankind is the center of all that it's talking about, pointing to. That's where its hope is. This teaching doesn't point to God. It ultimately just points to ourselves. We are the center of the devotion. Our self-improvement is the goal. It's a works-based righteousness. 
We see ourselves, perhaps unknowingly, as our own savior. If we would just do a little bit better, then we would get what we need. But the reality is there's no such thing as just doing these things and magically becoming godly. We are called to pursue God. And something we should understand is there's no such thing as passive consumption. What we consume will inevitably drive our thoughts, which will then in turn drive our actions. It is a type of training, which is why as Paul moves along here with Timothy, he's moving towards this idea, not just of consuming the words of faith and the good doctrine, but this idea of training. Because Paul knows that godly consumption is training for godliness. In the New Testament, there's 15 occurrences of the Greek word translated godliness or godly. More than half are here in 1 Timothy. It's clear that this is an important concept for Paul to pass to Timothy. He wants him to understand godliness. But what is godliness? So often today, we see godliness as a moral trait, right? This means you have good moral character. You're a godly person. You're patient. You're kind. And that is, in a sense, kind of true, but that's not really what godliness is. And when this happens and we begin to define godliness in terms of morality, we begin to read this passage today and have temptation to see the type of training that Paul is instructing for Timothy here in terms of moral performance, to be drawn to a sub-biblical type of living, to just think it's all about doing better, honoring God more. If I just were a little bit more faithful, if I just did this a little bit more, then I would get these kinds of things. Again, it's going to the wrong thing first. To be people, the reality is this makes people who confess with their mouth that our faith is in the work of Jesus alone, but who, because of bad teaching or poor understanding, condemn themselves to live under the heavy burden of that works-based righteousness, to see this simply as a command to do better for God. But Scripture, even here, has more for us. Godliness is not just moral performance. Godliness, rightly understood, is reverence for God. It's the way one sees God and responds to being in the presence of God. It's not just emulation, doing the things that God would do, where we see and copy, but fundamentally, it's a reorientation of our lives. We are not acting more like Jesus, we are becoming more like Jesus. And as he changes us, who we once were dies off more and more, and we become more and more like him. This doesn't mean that we work our ways towards divinity, that somehow if we just model God enough, if we pursue him enough, if we become enough Christ-like, then somehow we get this elevated level of living. No, that's not what it's talking about. It's not what I'm trying to convince you of here. We are not gaining divinity. We're not becoming gods. It just means that we care about and do the things of God naturally. That the things that Jesus cares about are the things that we care about. The things that Jesus knows and believes, we know and believe. And increasingly, who we once were, that dead self, that natural man who naturally wanders from God, is on the periphery. And more and more, we are not just acting like Jesus, we are becoming Jesus. Our identity is changing. John Stott puts it hopefully this way, godly people are God-fearing people. 
They have experienced the Copernican revolution of Christian conversion from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. Previously, it could be said of them that in all their thoughts, there is no room for God. But now they might say, I have set the Lord always before me. A person who is growing in godliness is growing in their awareness of God's presence in their lives and they see his call for how they are to live in the way that he has designed to bring honor to himself and glory. Godly character is most fundamentally then not about moral performance, it's about spiritual awareness. To have in our mind that, and in our lives as God's people that we are a reflection of the king. And the clearer and clearer that we see our king, the better and better we reflect him to the world around us in his character as his work and person captivate our hearts and our minds. That's the goal. That's what Paul wants for Timothy and for us today. So how do we do this? How do we exercise ourselves unto godliness? What type of spiritual training are we to do? He doesn't give us a specific map saying these are the books to read, this is the amount of time that you do in all these different areas. No, but what Timothy is shown through the context of what is happening in this passage in the letter as a whole is that the fundamental way that a Christian finds nourishment, that a Christian should exercise, is the same way. It's the word of God. You're nourished on the word of God and you're exercised on the word of God. Discipline reflection of scripture is indispensable to the health of a Christian. Let me say that again. Disciplined reflection of scripture is indispensable to the health of a Christian. If we as Christians are gonna grow in godliness, if we are going to reflect our savior, we must be disciplined. Why do we get to this conclusion? Well, Paul here is drawing on this idea of Olympic training. The training here, the Greek word, is almost certainly tied to the kind of athletes that train themselves for Olympic competitions. It's disciplined. It has a goal in mind, and they work day after day after day for that. Paul here wants Timothy and his church to train themselves to be disciplined, to work themselves unto godliness by going to Scripture, to having a reflection on Scripture. This is what good teaching does. It forces you to look at Scripture and say, what is this saying? What is this teaching me about God and Jesus and what he would have for me, who he is and what he has done? This is what we find in the Bible. The Bible most fundamentally is a book by God about God. It contains the stories of the work of God, the character of God, and the people of God. And the more and more that this book gets pressed into our minds and into our hearts, the more and more we begin to see the effect that it has in our lives. This is why when you meet a person who for their entire life has been feeding on scripture, consuming it, learning it, memorizing it, hearing it, they are not easily rattled. You might look at them and say, like, how are you not angry right now? And you, know, you just say, well, Scripture tells me. And you're like, oh my gosh, as a young person, you roll your eyes and you're frustrated because I want the answers now. I want the solution. But what these people, who for their entire lives have been doing this, reveal to us is that this is the outcome. This is what happens when we have disciplined training throughout our entire lives. They're not rattled by the things that are around them, the ways of the world. They are infatuated with their Savior. And nothing is going to make them get rattled and off kilter 
because they know who Jesus is and what he has done for them. They have God ever before them. The result of that lifelong training is that they have been drawing closer and closer to the one who cares for them and holds them and preserves them, the one who has created them and ordered their steps. And so all the outside noise is it pull pours into their life has little effect on them because they have been put into that tractor beam of God and are being pulled to him more and more every day. This is the type of man that Paul wants Timothy to be. Somebody who labors not out of compulsion because it is all that he can do as he sees God clear and clear. To be a man whose hope is set on the living God who preserves his people. Indeed, this is what this whole passage seems to be pointing towards. The more that Timothy consumes and trains himself on the words of faith and on good doctrine, the more and more his hope is set on the living God. And as I stated earlier, what we consume will affect who we are. And so as Timothy does this, he's going to grow and grow in godliness. When I was a kid, I listened to sports all the time. Shocker, I know. But one of the outworkings of this, and why I know this is such a true statement about how we consume things and it affects us, even if it's passively, it was no surprise that when I was watching a Phoenix Suns game on UPN or wherever other thing I was watching, and a basketball player had a torn ACL that week when I was watching the game, and they're talking about it on the radio, I'd be outside playing basketball in my driveway. Lo and behold, what happens to me? Torn ACL. Mom! My knee! I need ace bandages. And I would come inside and demand ace bandages, wailing and crying. I tore my ACL. I tore my ACL. And my parents would roll their eyes and get out the box. And I'd wrap my leg with this makeshift knee brace and hobble around the entire day, begging for hope, saying, oh my gosh, I'm never going to be able to play basketball again. My ACL, it's so damaged. It hurts. What would happen? Well, the next day, Miraculously, quickest ACL recovery of all time. I don't need this ace bandage. My knee is fine. Why did I do this as a young kid? Because what I consumed affected the reality of how I lived. Because I listened and watched sports, I was diagnosing myself with what I heard. When I was a kid, this is what happened. I listened to a lot of sports. And so there was no such thing as like, oh, you just tweaked your knee a little bit. It'll be okay. Put some ice on it. Every injury that I saw was catastrophic because that's what they talk about when you watch sports. And so every injury to me was catastrophic. But godly teaching does the same thing to us. It helps us to rightly diagnose our lives, to see ourselves clearly. There's no such thing as passively consuming it. As we read it, it will make inroads into our life. We see this truth claimed in scripture such as Psalm 1 or Proverbs 13. What we consume, what we surround ourselves with has a tremendous impact on our life. We hear it and it seeps in. So what we consume, and if we consume, and have a hunger for the words of faith and for good teaching, it will begin to change us. It will make impact into our lives. And we find ourselves more and more drawn to God and emulating God and seeking God. We begin to see his work, which results in an increased confidence in his word and in his salvation. The production of proper consumption then is clear. It brings one's focus onto God and life begins to reflect that. And so as Paul continues to, we get to verse 11 and he's now urging Timothy. 
And he's talking to him, and he's pushing him. He's saying, let your actions be an overflow of your devotion towards God. He's commanded to teach these things, again, the words of faith and the good doctrine, and what is going to authenticate his teaching as of God is going to be his own life. It's not his age. It's not that he's this old, wise man. It's that he is emulating God. When people look at his speech, his conduct, his love, his faith, his purity, all of it will point to a man that is centered on God. The point of highlighting these five areas is not to give an exhaustive list of what we should do and the traits that we should emulate to those that are around us, but it's meant to show that Timothy, both inwardly and outwardly, has been impacted and continues to change because of the work of God's word bearing fruit in his life. Those that are the false teachers all around him point to themselves, but the goal of Timothy's work, the goal of Timothy's teaching is to produce people who are reflections of their Savior, who have Christ as the center of their lives, not themselves. And so if we go back to that question at the very beginning and we ask, am I doing this right? The first diagnostic, look at what you're consuming. But the second thing that we might ask that helps us to determine if what we are consuming is indeed the right thing is if we have a life that is growing in godliness, that is, has a natural outworking of speech, of conduct, and love, and faith, and purity that points not to how good an individual is, but to how great God is. And so we might ask ourselves, where is my life pointing? When somebody asks me about my hope, my encouragement, is it, well, you know, things are going really good. It's like God continues to work and do amazing things in my life. That's the answer that we should want. That's what we should desire. The testimony of our own life is a good way to see if we are growing and feeding on the right things. As Christians, we should expect to grow. It almost certainly will be slow. The results might not be immediately clear, but if we look back at our lives after years and decades, we should see that in certain areas we have indeed made progress, that we more naturally reflect God than we previously did. If one is a good servant and has been feasting on the good teaching, Paul goes to Timothy and says they won't consume just for themselves, but it will lead them to a place here where they become servants of others. They're sharing the things that God has done and taught and instructed them with with those that are around them. What causes good growth to become a good servant is good teaching. We've talked about that over and over this morning. And so Timothy is implored to not only himself consume this teaching, but to be somebody who is a conduit which others encounter the words of faith and the good doctrine that Timothy has received. He is to be devoted to what, Paul says? To the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, which is to encourage the believers to live according to scripture, and then to teach them what the words of faith, what good doctrine is. He is to be devoted to help the people of Ephesus train in godliness like he himself has. To be a Christian, fundamentally we should understand, is to be growing and helping others grow in character, conviction, and competence. Timothy must not neglect to use his gift to this end, to help those that are around them. Godly consumption will lead to a life that is other-focused. Timothy is commanded to use what he has been given not to further his own fame and cause himself notoriety, but that others might grow in their confidence and reliance on Christ. 
It is also another reminder, even as it section comes to a close, that what brings change in people is not a can-do attitude, but an awareness and dependence on the work of God revealed through the word of God. The final piece of production that we begin to see here for Timothy is that Christian growth is never done. In verse 15, Timothy must continually go back to the words of faith and to the good doctrine that he might continue to grow. And so as, conti- as Timothy continues to immerse himself with godly consumption, the letter continues in verse 16 with a very awkward phrasing of a, of a word that we might say, like, wait, what? this seems out of step. When the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy at the end of all this, if he persists in this, he will save himself and his hearers. And so we say, everything is good, and then we say, well, I thought salvation comes through Jesus. Is Paul really saying that Timothy, if he does these things, will, will earn enough merits for salvation? No, that cannot be what he says. Already in verse 10, in this section, he talks about the living God who saves his people. So it's not talking about the specifics of You weren't saved, you were going to hell, you're going to heaven because you did these things, Timothy. What Paul is trying to help Timothy understand and remind him as this comes to a close this morning is that as Timothy continues to immerse himself with the word of God, this letter is going to remind him that it is not Timothy that will be the one who saves himself, but the true words of God brought before himself and those that he is teaching. He will save himself, not because of his labors, but because the more that he goes to Scripture, the more that he sees God's word, the more that he sees what God has done, the more he will be dependent on God for his salvation, for his hope, for indeed everything in his life. And in doing so, he will see the salvation that has come to himself, and he will bring that news of salvation to others. He will save himself and and his hearers. As the section comes to a close this morning... Timothy's reminded that there is a need to continue to work out his own salvation progressively and persistently. He must, we must today be people who persist in godly training so that we can become more and more saturated and infatuated with our God and Savior. This is the call today to never tire or neglect feasting on the true words of faith and good doctrine to be people of discipline who day after day train ourselves by pressing God's word into our minds and into our hearts, to be people who are continually drawn more and more to God, and as we are drawn to God, we continue to help others draw near to him too. We are encouraged, in short this morning, to look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, The more we run to him, the more we run to his word, the more we will enjoy his work and see his spirit change who we are. J.D. Greer sums up this whole section very helpfully. When the goodness of Christ and the character of Christ and the word of Christ are evident in the church, people in the world will be drawn to him. This is why we must guard the truth so people will be saved by it. This is why we must live with purity so people see the difference Christ makes. This is why we train for godliness so people see in us the majesty of Christ. May everything we do draw people to our great Savior. So as we finish this morning, let me give you three helpful questions to evaluate, to apply, and to look at your life. 
Number one, what teaching are you consuming? If no teaching, how might you start? If you are consuming something, what is its focus? What is it leading you towards? Number two, where does your hope for change come from in life? Is it a can-do attitude, moral performance, or is it from time spent with the Father? And number three, who is it that you are actively praying and sharing the words of faith and good doctrine with in your life? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are the God that all of Scripture points to. We know it's so easy to let life become about us, about our circumstances, about our situation. But Lord, we pray that we would have an increasing dependence on you. That we would be experiencing that revolution where life and life is less about the outcomes that we face, our current situation, but our life becomes more and more about you that you are the thing that which we orbit around, the thing that we are constantly drawn to. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be drawn to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, that we would have teaching in our life, teaching at this church, teaching as we drive our cars, the things that we read, the things that we listen to, that wouldn't point to moral performance, that wouldn't point to just doing things and becoming a better person, but Lord would indeed point us to you. We desire to be with you, to commune with you. Help us to become people who are dependent on you, who know you and cling to you. This is our hope and our plea. Father, press the words, your words of scripture into our minds and our hearts that we might know you and become more and more like you. We ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.